for me, there is plenty of spot. Ultimately, the goal of highly or fully protected 30% of the ocean by 2030, the next 10 years, it's the big boom planet, all of the land and sea, and the people who are out there doing what each can do. It all counts. No it all matters. Yeah. But everybody can do something. And we're all part of this network of life and, and hope as well, the, the network of hope. Hey folks, welcome back to Growing the Green Economy. I've had a crazy year, including starting a demanding new job leading content strategy for Startup Linear B. And I'm sorry to have kept the podcast on hiatus for so long, but I'm really glad to be back with multiple episodes. And I'm especially excited about today's episode because I am proud to be joined by National Geographic's explorer at large, internationally renowned oceanographer and author of the highly anticipated book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Dr. Earl, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm glad to be on board. It's extremely exciting to have you here. I know you've been dubbed the first hero of the planet by Time Magazine. So there's some big accolades out there about you. Can you give our listeners some more context into your background and tell us a bit about yourself? I've been splashing around in the ocean for most of my life. I love that. <laughs> Starting when I was a kid in New Jersey, later moving to Florida, and my backyard was the Gulf of Mexico. Not too shabby. No, it was really wonderful place to be, not just a kid, but anybody, anytime. Totally. I have been witness to change, remarkable change over decades as a scientist exploring not just the Gulf of Mexico, but increasingly globally. My first time <laughs> west of the Mississippi, I was in my 30s, went outside the country, literally for the first time. I went to the Indian Ocean on an expedition, six weeks, as a scientist facing the same kinds of issues that scientists aboard ships face today. There you are on the surface of the ocean, but getting to the great depths still is challenging, although we're getting a whole lot better now than was true when I first took the plunge in the 1950s using scuba. But using scuba, greater as it is and as much enjoyed as it is by millions of people now, that only enables access to the upper 50 meters or so. And the average depth of the ocean is about where the Titanic is. Yeah, a little, little different there. It's 4,000 meters and the maximum is, you know, 11,000. So we have a long way to go to really even see, let alone truly explore and understand the nature of the ocean with the same degree of, of thoroughness that we have from land. That's a great point. And I think it's especially poignant given that as humans, we live on land and we typically think about the continents as our world, right? But the actual majority of the world is underwater. It's ocean. True. And most of life on the planet not only is in the ocean, but lives in the dark all of the time, about a thousand feet. And it's really dark. It's illuminated by bioluminescent creatures, but basically it's eternal darkness. The sunlight doesn't penetrate much below about a thousand feet, 300 meters, although a little bit in clear ocean water, especially in the middle of the day, some sunlight even deeper than, than that. But consider the average depth is two and a half miles. It's really dark. I'm, I'm curious. I know you have this book coming out. Can you tell us a bit about what's happening in it and what listeners can expect from that? Is that going to be an exploration of everything that's happening in the depths? Is it going to be talking about the societal problems that are threatening the ocean? What, what should we expect? For me, 2021, is a time for me to really reflect on how much we have learned and 
how much we have lost since the middle of the 20th century. We're on a fast track in both the good news and the bad news. And nowhere is that more evident than in climate. And we typically relate climate to the skies above, but it's been obvious to some of us for a very long time that when you think about climate, it's about the ocean. So in the National Geographic book, Ocean, a Global Odyssey, gave me an opportunity to dive in literally to what is now known that wasn't known not so long ago about what is the nature of the ocean, the origin of the ocean, what is water, and what do we know about the nature of water? Just the background, the story of the ocean, and then to go into the story of life in the ocean, because the ocean is not just rocks and water, of course. It's filled with life and the nature of the ocean, the nature of the planet, the chemistry of the planet, that our life support system is governed well, first, because there is a lot of water here, most of the ocean, but because it's alive. The living ocean generates most of the oxygen in the atmosphere. It has over the ages, and it still does, absorbs much of the carbon dioxide and certainly drives the great ocean food webs with the food that is generated through photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide is stored in the deep sea. We, we are just <laughs> beginning to appreciate the magnitude of the influence, not only that the ocean has on us, but now that we have on the ocean. So the latter part of the ocean, a global odyssey, really focuses on just that, on climate, the ocean and climate, humans as a factor in driving climate, as a big factor in shaping the chemistry of the planet with ocean acidification, with the garbage, <laughs> the junk, the plastic. Oh, God, yeah. And the huge numbers of wild creatures that we're extracting, truly extravagantly taking animals out of the ocean with interfleet applied technologies that we now are using to take life out of the sea and apply them to the land. Earth would be on the land a really barren place today. And the ocean is becoming barren too. I'm really glad you bring up these multiple facets of the problem. And particularly, I think a really underrated one that you mentioned is the amount of carbon dioxide that is stored in the ocean. We talk a lot about, oh, we can plant a ton of trees to affect climate change, or, oh, we can have carbon capture technologies on land. But all the while the oceans are heating, they're acidifying, and we're, as a species, largely ignoring the impact that we're having there. The biggest worry is destroying the natural carbon capturing mechanisms that have taken this planet from an uninhabitable place from our standpoint to one that is favorable to us. Right. So it took a very long time to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, largely by ocean microbes, phytoplankton, aided increasingly as they came into existence, seagrasses, marshes, mangroves that now do the heavy lifting of capturing and storing carbon while they're generating oxygen and, and generating food. So <laughs> here we are just beginning to get into focus, the magnitude of how important the ocean is. And it wasn't really until the climate conference in, in Paris that the first time the climate got at least some notice, like a footnote. By now, the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow will feature the ocean front and center. Still, there is something in our complacent nature with respect to the ocean, it seems so big, so vast, so resilient. And we have these habits that are born of long traditions of free goods, free groceries from the ocean, taking disrupts and upsets the carbon cycle. We haven't made the connection between 
blue carbon, if you will, and climate. And some people have and are raising the alarm. It does it's really contraintuitive that on one hand we're saying we've got to capture the carbon <laughs> and look at the, what's happening. At the same time, we're releasing carbon dioxide when we take wildlife out of the ocean. Utterly. On a mega scale. And when we destroy the mangroves and dig up the seagrass meadows so we can plant shopping malls and parking lots on the places where seagrasses once thrived and housing developments. You look at Florida, where I spent a lot of time as a kid and still spend a lot of time. The shorelines, Florida is not unique. It's just been a witness so much to Tampa Bay, for example, losing about a third of its original water to finger fills and housing developments and bridges and causeways and all the other ways that we are really good at transforming coastlines. And it's costing us in ways that we haven't put on the balance sheet before when we now are looking at the cost of climate. So what are key ways that we should be working to protect the ocean? Just that. Protect the ocean. <laughs> People, how can you do that? Again, there are no fences that you can erect in the ocean, but really we don't rely so much anymore with physical barriers to determine what are one places we delineate carve up land exists. We, we really do rely on the new means of being able to know where we are and know where we should not be. So in the ocean, of course, nations claim jurisdiction out 200 miles. Right. And states still have some jurisdiction out, typically about three miles from shore, that is complemented by the larger reach that is uh, national in, in scope. So this country, United States, is about twice as big as we think it is if you just consider the land. Embracing the exclusive economic zones, we would double more than double the size. Never actually thought about that. That is a crazy thing. And we have jurisdiction. We can, and we have taken action to designate marine protected areas, sanctuaries, national monuments. For a while, the biggest marine protected area in the planet was what George W. Bush established around the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. And that was incised by President Obama, and once again became, at the time, the biggest marine protected area on the planet. But now other areas have exceeded that, and it sounds like really good news, and it is. But when you take all of those areas that nations around the world had designated, mostly in the last 20 years, it's an idea that's catching on, but only about 3% is highly or fully protected. And if you add those areas that are managed that really are not as effective as when you just stop the killing. You can't go there, but you go there respectfully. You don't go there to take and kill or, or dull things. And by 2030, nations around the world are committing, including the United States, to embrace as much as 30% highly or fully and fully protected or fully protected. And by 2050, to scale up to essentially half the world, we could do that in a stroke. If we decided together to protect the high seas, it's about half the world, the yeah. planet beyond national jurisdiction, but there are vested interests that have already got their hooks literally <laughs> into the high seas with industrial fleets that are economically not very smart because they're subsidized. If you take away the subsidies, they couldn't really afford to venture that far offshore. And they stopped using basically slave labor. Some countries really have the equivalent of indentured servants, slaves, raiding these ships sometimes legally. I think the legal fishing is more damaging than either the illegal 
or the unreported and unregulated, which often are highlighted as the real cause of concern. But I look at the legal fishing as the biggest problem because we're endorsing the extraction of ocean wildlife on a scale that really is affecting the carbon cycle. It's a big comment that I just made, but look at the evidence. When you take millions of tons of ocean wildlife and release their carbon into the atmosphere, whether it's carbon dioxide or methane, when they, right. die, they die and the carbon goes back into the atmosphere. So we're in the process, it disrupts the natural carbon capturing and sequestration mechanisms that have made Earth favorable to life as we know it over a long period of time, a very short period of time. We're just driving great holes into the system. And at the same time, the, just the amount of CO2 and methane that are being released. Plus, I think importantly, the disruption of the mechanisms that have naturally captured and held these. It's a closely coupled system. It's only had the privilege of doing time underwater, thousands of hours observing the intricacies, eat and be eaten, whatever life, the amazing life histories of small creatures linked to the medium-sized creatures linked to the big old creatures, some of them thousands of years old. There's some sponges that literally are a thousand years old. That's incredible. And, and some corals, there's some kind of shark, the Greenland shark that lives to be at least 400 years old. Wow. Imagine some of these sharks are swimming around in the ocean today that were around, think about what was going on 400 years ago. What, what we did not know 400 years ago. We did not know what air was. I had not discovered the, the composition of many of the elements of the things we take for granted. Let alone a penicillin or any like modern convenience. Yeah, no cell phones. You, you show one of those, a 400 year old shark, and I'd be a little confused at least. I, I love that the book not only lays out the importance of the ocean and, and what it is, it gives us like scientific basis for a comprehensive reference, but also digs into the importance and the interwoven nature of the ocean. And as you put it, the web of life there to the rest of the world. And I agree with you. I think it's, it's sad and, and, and frustrating that we're not moving faster to protect more of the ocean because there is such a massive impact there. We see such huge gains when ocean areas are protected, the wildlife begins to come back almost immediately and extensively. And there's so much potential there because I think you alluded to this, when we can enable safe areas for fish and other wildlife to begin to breed and grow and rebuild infrastructure, the natural infrastructure, we are combating a multitude of impacts with that because not only are we keeping that carbon in there and creating these areas that are therefore capturing carbon from the atmosphere and also keeping carbon in that could have otherwise gone out, but we're also helping to reduce a variety of factors that may be coming in to affect the, the climate and the ocean. So I, I love that consideration there because it, it's clear that basically just leaving things alone and saying, hey, we'll leave this area alone could have such a positive impact that ripples out across you know, a multitude of systems, whether it's ocean acidification, rising sea levels, et cetera. Like all of these are intertwined and there are key actions we could take. And this is one of them that will reverberate outwards. We have this curious perspective, humans. <laughs> we say that when we convert a natural area to human purposes, we call it improved land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look at near woods near where I am right now in California. And it's just hard for me to imagine that we could do anything to improve on that. Look at a coral reef or a kelp forest, or even a 
intact, healthy salt marsh. It takes a long time to get these systems so that they're functioning in the magical way that they naturally do. They may not inspire in us the lofty, poetic thinking that some natural areas more or less than others. But when you think about it, we don't know how to make a marsh from scratch. We can simulate it by planting some things, but a marsh, like a redwood forest, let's say like New York City, it, it does happen overnight. And it takes a lot of little pieces that generally don't think about, but take away the taxi drivers or take away the garbage collectors, take away the plumbing system, or you know, shut down the water. Chaos results. And so we're getting better at trying to restore lost and damaged systems, but nature does the best job. A lot yeah. of that through the microbes that we have truly neglected until right about now. And that we often just don't truly understand or are just beginning to understand their true impact. So I, I think that's a, a great point. And people really underestimate the impacts that our climate change decisions have had on the sea. I think the latest numbers are that rising sea levels have already caused a 35% increase in global natural disasters affecting just under 2 billion people, 1.7 billion people. That's some incredible impact in a negative way on humanity already. And this is just 2021. Things are going to get worse before they get better. We love our coasts. There's a high concentration of people along areas where water exists, but a disproportionate number of the human population lives within harm's way along coastal areas with respect to storms and similar ones. Yeah. And because there are more of us now, the economic... Quite a few. <laughs> and the, the uh, loss of life, too, during these disasters. There are only 2 billion people on the planet when I arrived. And now they're almost four times that number. That, that's such an interesting point to think about the scale that humanity has reached so quickly. And just the last 70 years or so, it has accelerated an incredible amount. And I think that there's some odd hope in the fact that we're leveling off a little bit and we're not increasing as substantially all across the world from a population perspective, but we're at a point where we have massive changes we need to make. And it's really easy for folks to say, oh, this is bad for the economy. And so we can't do this, but that's not actually true. If you look at aggregate, like to your point earlier, often these fishing vessels are heavily subsidized and the negative externalities that they are putting into the rest of our world more than pay for the cost of not having these vessels. And if we look at, you know, the cost of disasters continually rising, we can also look at, at benefits that we're not accruing if we're just looking at like a purely economic perspective. You talked about the wildlife refuge around Hawaii in the, in the oceans there. That is an incredible source of tourism. It's an incredible source of direct value there. And there are so many other opportunities here to work with the oceans. I'd be curious what you think about ideas around offshore tidal power or maybe looking at farming of seagrasses or I guess factory farming of fish. Are, are these ways to supplement what we've traditionally thought of as what we're accruing for the ocean and do it in a more sustainable manner? Well, a new term is the blue economy. Yeah, absolutely. Scaling up the blue economy. I'm a big fan. And there's also a, another category called blue foods. But I think what we must appreciate is that our prosperity has come at the cost of nature. Just look at where we've come from over the last 200 years. In 1800, 1 billion people on the planet. And when you think about, we're well, now close to 8 billion, that looks like great news for humans. We're really prosperous. We're really rocking along. And at the same time, though, we have not calculated the cost 
I gave a talk at the World Bank once, and I pointed to the view of Earth from space and said, there it is, the World Bank. And we've been drawing down the assets. We put some things back. We try to, but by and large, it's just been a game of taking, taking oil, taking gas, taking minerals, taking wildlife, cutting the trees, occupying the land, displacing whatever it is to put us where the natural systems are. Life support system once was. Now, we're really perilously close to going over the edge of taking paving over so much of North America that the water waves, the, the natural water cycle is already impeded. That's part of what gives us a, a big problem during storms. Where does the water go? It used to go right. to the ground and get contributing to ground water. But look at any city today. Where is land evident? New York City, you can look at Central Park, and you can look on the cracks in the sidewalk. You can look at the little space around some trees that they're a little tiny bit of where rain can fall and get soaked into the ground. But we have really created this enormous problem for ourselves, mainly because of our appetite for creating places for cars, for transportation. We love the transportation. You can scoot along at high speed across the country. Um, at least railways left some spaces in between the tracks, but the highways don't. Ours have been a plague. I'm sorry, but they've just been such a issue for us because it's made us build the world in the wrong way. You know, without anticipating the consequence, again, thinking that it doesn't matter. And, and the complacency of just, it's an improvement putting the road. That's it, our mindset. And the way that we account for nature, as you pointed out, we, we haven't really done a good job of that. In fact, fish have an accounting base in zero. They're free goods, free groceries. It's one way that anybody can feed themselves, right? At no cost. It's a cost. We just haven't put it on the books. It's the externalities. Like we'd love to not think about what we're doing and how it's impacting everyone else and the planet. And we'd love to think about just, oh, like it's not costing me a dollar. I'm able to do this and, and fish for this. But the actual impact of that is much broader. And we're bad at thinking about that in a broader sense. And, and our society is so individualistic particularly in the United States and a lot of like Western societies where we don't really think about like the actual impact on the community. But I think this time, like right now, early in the 21st century, if we ever have a chance to get it right, we were armed with a superpower of no, could not even 10 years ago, let alone 50 or a hundred or a thousand. We've got that perspective and like this conversation that we're having, imagine having this conversation 20 years ago would be something that people would think of as, as real, but it is real. And that's cause for hope that we're facing up for the first time to the consequences for actions. Really. A lot of smart people around. <laughs> Before the middle of the 20th century, Einstein comes to mind, but he didn't get to see birth from space. He did not get to see that, yes, we can change the world. We can even change the climate. We humans have these powers that we didn't know we had. And now understanding that power exists, we have that superpower of being able to change. I would have said, no, people are not going to change because no matter what, but look at 2020, when our very lives as individuals, as well as across society, were affected by a common threat, we changed. We changed big time. I think the challenge right now and, and you're rising to the challenge because there you are communicating hey world the climate's changing we've got to do something about it when it becomes integrated into a common awareness of concern everything we care about is on the line 
including our systems. Oh, by the way, it's not just the economy. Oh, nothing big. But our very lives truly are at risk in a comprehensive way. When the climate shifts as rapidly as it is shifting, we're in trouble. And because it hasn't happened as swiftly as COVID-19, like the world shut down, like boom, and we should be prepared to make a comparable commitment to change now that we understand what the real problem is and why everything we care about is truly on the line. It's not a matter of, well, shall we or shall we not react? Or do we have, how much time do we have of time? We must react. We, we have to, climate's not even say 10 years. And that's give or take. Life will go on one way or the other, but it's going to become increasingly difficult for humans to do what we now do. Take for granted the natural systems that have been working favorably for our kind, our species, but it's going to become increasingly unfriendly. I think it's a little cliche because it's from a comic book. But there's a line from Spider-Man where his Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility. I've always loved that line because I think it's very true to, to your point. We do have the power to shape the climate. We're doing it right now. We're just not doing it as actively, as intentionally as we should or in a positive manner. We have the power to, to make these changes and we have the responsibility to ourselves and to future generations and to the planet to actually meet that challenge because we've let that slip away and said, oh, you know, I don't have responsibility. It's not my fault. We've complained certain people. And yes, like largely there are corporate reasons and economic reasons to blame for a lot of the decisions we're making. But we also have responsibility as individuals to take action, to push for change, whether that's calling your congressperson or joining a local group or communicating about it. So I, I love your message of hope because I, I think you're spot on. We have a window here for the next five to 10 years yeah. where we can make those changes. And I love it that the kids are growing up armed with knowledge that did not exist when I was yes. a kid. And that's because for hope, not just that they know what we could not know, but that they are tuned in, I think, to being able to anticipate the future in ways that those who preceded the present time were just not able to do. In fact, think about all the life on earth, what other intelligent creatures like elephants and cats and dogs and horses and whales and I know some pretty smart fish. They not only work with the same sensitivity that we have about anticipating the future, they don't know to the extent that humans know the geology of the planet. They can't just knowing anything about their own history. I think some creatures have some sense of their own history, those certainly in primates and elephants. And again, there, there may be creatures otherwise in a major generational fashion, but we are really good at diving into time and knowing how old the world is, how old the universe is. We didn't know that not so long ago. Right now, knowing that we know and knowing that they can do stuff, it was just not feasible before. We live in the information age. We have so much more access to information and knowledge of the situation we're in than right. previous generations. And we can also see cause and effect that we know because there's evidence that when we do this, that can happen. And not go back to the world that was even five years ago, let alone 500, but we can make the next five and the next 500, the next 10,000 better than other ones would be if we stay on the same trajectory that we're on right now. Absolutely. The reason I called this podcast Growing the Green Economy, I could have called it the climate crisis or something like that, but I, I really try to frame things from that perspective. I, I think there's a lot of folks who maybe acknowledge that there are issues and climate change is a problem, but they maybe don't accept that we need to make these drastic changes. And what I'm trying to do with this show is to say, 
look, not only do we need to make these drastic changes, but these drastic changes will be good for society. They'll be good for the way we live. They'll be good for our experience on the planet. They can be even good for this mythical economy that we like to call things. Growing a green economy doesn't mean cutting more trees. And growing a blue economy doesn't mean cutting more fish, bulldozing the ocean, mining the ocean, taking more out of nature. What it must mean, although it's not so interpreted by a great many people, we need to figure out how to give back. Yes. Non-extractive, circular. Yes. And to be smart about it. There are great fortunes to be made and a great prosperity when we truly make peace with the planet and use our superpower of knowledge, of knowing how to do things, knowing the consequences to, to really build, well, the, the phrase of the time is build back better. It doesn't mean that we continue to consume the very source of our existence. We don't, we can't go on doing this. It's like chopping the, the limb off the tree that we're sitting on. So I do want to talk about a couple of like more specific issues. I know we've been talking a lot about conservation and protecting wildlife and protecting areas of the ocean, but there are other problems that are spreading even despite that. So one example that we mentioned briefly, but didn't really dive into is plastic and trash in the ocean. And that's even if we protect large areas of the ocean, if trash is still getting the ocean and particularly like small plastics that are breaking down into the environment, they're going to degrade a lot of that. What are ways that you've seen that we can start addressing challenges like that? Well, I say they're great fortunes to be made by those who figure out how to solve this problem, looking for alternatives. Plastic is, is not really the problem. It's what we do with it, mm -hmm. how we treat it as in some way. Yes. Many variations on the theme of these synthetic materials and Generally speaking, they are, the good news is they're durable. The bad news is they're durable. Yeah. <laughs> they're cheap. Double-edged sword, right? The bad news is they're cheap. I've been around long enough to remember when Tupperware was the great new plastic were featured as something that every homeowner should have in their kitchen. They're durable. They're, they were not that inexpensive. But that's one feature that enabled people to really value them and not throw them away. And the fact is, my mom gathered together quite a lot of Tupperware that I still have. I still use it. Very it is cool. durable. It lasts a very long time. Even the throwaway plastics are durable and last a long time. That's the perverse nature of these materials. That the fishing nets made up of synthetic materials that were lost or discarded in the ocean in the 1960s that are still out there catching and killing and entangling creatures that never come to market than just the cost of the industrial scale or even sometimes the local scale of fishing. And currently, these discarded or, or you know, unintentionally lost lines and nets, traps, on the order of 300,000 marine mammals every year. That's whales, dolphins, wow. seals, sea lions, otters, and then birds, thousands of birds, seabirds. I mean, we're up to a few thousand, talking hundreds of thousands. And sea turtles, they're struggling to come back from a time when there were so few sea turtles that their recovery seemed to doubt because people were killing not just the adult, hundred year old turtles, but the babies, yeah. And the eggs, they, they either raided with business for eggs, but they also paved them over with serpent malls and when they transformed coastal areas into human structures of various kinds. So it, it's really hard. People don't think about the cost of what they think of as seafood. It's wildlife. It's the most commonly traded wildlife on the planet. And there are malls that govern the trade of wildlife in 
birds and reptiles, amphibians and certainly mammals. But when it comes to wildlife trade called fish or shrimp or lobsters, they're very different mindset. Boy, you mentioned this idea of like, there's prosperity to be had. There's opportunities here. So whenever there's change, there's opportunity. And one example that I, I really love, I'm a big fan of Paul Stamets. I, I live in Olympia, Washington now. He's a local here and mushroom mycologist aficionado. And one of my favorite experiments and talks I've ever seen him give was talking about how there are actual mushrooms that will eat plastics and will break them down. And so this is something that's not quite like an industrial scale yet, but there's opportunities there. But you can also use mushrooms as building materials. Yes. Yeah. You can eat them too. Oh, I love mushrooms. And they grow fast and, and they're not just one kind. There's so many variations on the theme. Oh, see, I, I love this. You, you're into mushrooms. Yeah, this is, this is something I want to do. Lots of there are relatives out in the ocean, not the ones like a little toadstool, typical mushroom, but they're relatively widespread throughout the soil and throughout the planet, the whole living planet. We just undervalue them. And just think about the future of the blue economy, the future of the green economy. It's in using the natural world across the board as a library. Yes. There's solutions there by looking at how other creatures live their lives. Look how a tuna fish moves. Their propulsion system is 97% efficient in terms of capturing little whirlpools that are generating when they swish the tail back and forth. That's incredible. And, and we haven't come close to that, but engineers at MIT are on it. They're building robo tuna to try to figure out how do they do it. You don't want to lose the deal out in the ocean by the law, for heaven's sakes. But we have consumed on the order of 90% of the complete pollution tuna and big chunks and the other tunas as well. We just think of them, we don't think of them as miracles, as a library. We think of them as mm, delicious and free. Right, right. Or accounting base. I mean, what's with this anyway? It depends on the day, I think. Dr. Earl, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I know it's made me excited for your new book, National Geographic Ocean and Global Odyssey. I do want to give you a chance to give some like closing thoughts because I've been just guiding you down these tracks, making you talk about mushrooms and all these other things. Do you want to give us some like closing takeaways about the book and kind of maybe a call to action besides get the book? That's a great one. But uh, also, like, what else should people be doing? I try to draw together in the book what else people should be doing. Perfect. Get the book then, folks. <laughs> in terms now that we celebrate several dozen visionaries, people who have been asking just that question and coming up with some answers about exploration, about solutions to problems, about understanding and celebrating the nature of life and why it matters and looking at the true value. Each of the chapters also focuses on a hope spot place in the ocean. I love that. Where individuals have come together, usually with a, a champion or, or getting a community and in some instances, the whole country behind going from wherever that place is turns its nature to get to a better place. Ultimately, the goal of highly or fully protected, a part of this network of hope of 30% by 2030, the next 10 years, and to celebrate what others are doing as the hope spots are really a part of Mission Blue. The Mission Blue has more than 200 partners, and we celebrate whatever anybody does anywhere to get that. where we are to get to a better place. We actually didn't talk much about Mission Blue. Do you want to give us just a little quick summary? I won the TED Prize in... Congratulations, by the way. I was able to make a wish big enough to change the world, and the wish I made to get the Tedsters to come on board and help was what I've been doing trying to do most of my life to try to ignite public support for new submarines, new ways of communicating, all directed toward developing this network of hope, protecting areas. And for me, there is one hope spot 
course, it's the big blue planet, all of the land and sea, and the people who are out there doing what each can do. It all counts. No it all matters. Yeah. But everybody can do something. And we're all part of this network of life and, and hope as well, the, the network of hope. I, I love that. And I think it's a really important message because it's, it's so hard seeing the headlines, seeing the horror of disasters, seeing the sadness to, to really get down and say, oh, there's no hope. But there's a lot of hope out there. There's a lot of opportunity out there. And it's also not on every individual. We don't all have to be Dr. Earl. Dr. Earl's doing some incredible stuff, but we can all make impacts in our own ways, in our own communities, people in our lives. And those small impacts add together. Humans achieve a lot through collective action. I, I always say this, collective action is, is our superpower that creates those massive changes. Well, engineers have a term that they refer to as the sweet spot to a point that's just right. I think this is the sweet spot in human history because- I like that. Well, could we know what we now know and never again we have a chance as good as what we've got, right? Yes. To, to make a place for ourselves within the natural systems, by respecting the natural systems, by understanding that we really need to protect the systems that keep us alive. This is the best chance we will ever have to, to hold on to what we've got and to restore what we can. This universe that's not really very friendly, but we've got a big planet. We just need to keep it that way. I think that's a great spot to close on the fact that we're in humanity's sweet spot. I, I love that idea. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. For folks who want to get the book, it's out. You can order it now. You'll be among the first to hold it in your hands. I will put a link to that in the description for the episode. Dr. Earl, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been wonderful. I, I wish you the best uh, with the book and thank you for helping change the world. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Growing the Green Economy. If you can take 30 seconds to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it's hugely helpful. These metrics drive how the show gets discovered, and you taking 30 seconds to support the show means the world to me. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, and across social media at Connor Bronsden. Thanks for listening.